When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome back to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and the way it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Keith Phipps, here again with... Tasha Robinson. Genevieve Kosky. Scott Tobias. In the first half of this conversation, we talked about Carol Ballard's 1979 classic, The Black Stallion, the story of a boy who survives in the wild with the help of a remarkable horse, then asked to determine what happens to that relationship when civilization beckons. In the second half, we'll be looking at David Lowry's remake of Pete's Dragon, the story of a boy who survives in the wild with the help of a furry green dragon who seems like the best possible oversized hybrid of a dog and cat, then asked to determine what happens to that relationship when civilization beckons. Much of the press leading up to Pete's Dragon's release concerned the unlikeliness of Lowry, whose name was little known outside of film festival circles, helming a Disney film. Here was a director who had just two low-budget features to his name, the most recent of which, a twist on a Lovers on the Lamb drama named Ain't Them Body Saints, played like a long-lost collaboration between Terrence Malick and Robert Altman. And now he's delivering a special effects-heavy remake of a 70s Disney musical? That this new Pete's Dragon has virtually nothing to do with the original Pete's Dragon might be a good place to start. Instead, Lowry brings the same love of images and lyricism evident in Eighth Embodied Saints to a film that, like The Black Stallion and E.T., another key influence, treats kids' films, kid audiences, and the emotional lives of children with respect and intelligence. Pete, is Elliot your imaginary friend? What's imaginary? Well, it's where you make someone up in your head so that you have someone to talk to. It keeps you from being lonely. Are they funny? Sure. Do they fly? I guess they can do whatever you want them to. That's what makes them imaginary. Are you my imaginary friend too? (laughs) I'm real. So is Ellie. I'm already tipping my hand a little bit about how I felt about this movie, which I loved. What about you? Loved it. Yeah, me too. yeah, you didn't think I did? No, I didn't no, think you did. of course I did. Yeah, I loved it. Oh, okay. Yeah, I, I, Tasha. I wrote it. <laughs> Meh. <laughs> Meh. Oh, my God. Really? Okay. Yeah, really. I, um... I, hold on. We'll get back to you. <laughs> Scott and Genevieve, let's, talk, let's just have a love fest for this movie first. It was so gorgeous looking and such care and control put into it, but yet so emotionally rich. Every time I get cranky about CGI stuff, I'm going to think about, mm-hmm. you know, think about Elliot. I'm going to think about the BFG a little bit too. You just but, threw uh, that in for Scott, didn't you? you know, I, I like that movie too, but, but, um, but just the effects here that, that can only be accomplished with modern technology, but the movie never felt in service to that. I mean, I love the care that went into it, like matching the, the color tones of the dragon with the feel of the forest. Mm-hmm. I mean, and it's got to me. I mean, the story really worked for me. Well, I would say, first of all, that this is the ideal of when you should do a remake, right? So often when studios turn to their catalog titles to uh, revive for modern audiences, they turn to classics. And then not only are the remakes a pale shadow of the original films, but they're also inclined to follow that template, right? But Pete's Dragon's like, okay, we'll take the boy and the dragon, <laughs> the name of the town, I think is the same, and then just blow the whole thing up and make a completely different movie. I mean, the, the pairing was is really natural here because I think a lot of the, the virtues of Pete's Dragon are right in line with Black Stallion, the simplicity of it, the clarity of emotion, the attention to natural beauty, ideas of family and of, of abandonment and of, of growing up, you know, of civilization and, and its effects. I mean, all of those things are really emotionally resonant parts of both movies and uh it was you know such a thrill to see a movie like pete's dragon after a summer uh so full of loud cluttered suicide squad type of movies i mean just there, there was such a purity again i like i keep using the word 
words like purity and elemental, but those are the types of adjectives I, I would use to describe Pete's Dragon as, as well as uh, the Black Stallion. And in family films, it, it just gets no better for me than that. Yeah, and on the remake tip, this is kind of the inverse of Ghostbusters in, in a lot of ways, just in terms of both demand and approach you know <laughs> yeah. like like no one was asking for a, a pete's dragon remake in 2016 but we got one and it looks nothing like pete's dragon or 1977 i, I have and, to say it because i remember having a choice of going to see it or going to see star wars for a third or fourth time <laughs> like, yeah, let's see star wars yeah. but as far as this pete's dragon goes like i said i i loved it and what struck me so much about it was the tone which is just so gentle and childlike without being simplistic or saccharine Mm -hmm. um, which is something that that tone can often tip over into it i I found myself thinking a lot about the winnie the pooh movie from a couple years ago just in in terms of how that fit into the rest of what disney animation was doing at the time and how this film fits into all the Disney live action remakes that are happening right now, just in in terms of being such a more gentle, self-assured project. Um, and a throwback, too, to yeah. when movies could be like that. Exactly. Tasha. Tasha, do you want to bring the hammer down on this whole thing? I don't want to bring the hammer down on it. I mean, I take no delight in not really caring about uh, like an individual movie as much as other people do, but I just didn't see the same movie that you guys did. I mean, I I thought that first sequence in the car where the little boy has the, the book and his dad's like, you don't know what an adventure is? Well, he's Let like me three. tell you. The, yeah, the tone really of all of that was just, I, I mean, to me it was kind of saccharine and kind of artificial. And I, I saw... Yeah, but the parents die in the very next... <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, and but I that's thought like, that like, that like was executed that's... just beautifully. Like, yeah, it, I, right. it, that, that sequence really surprised right, so, me. So, Tasha is, is anti-teaching children what words mean, pro-parents <laughs> dying. I'm absolutely pro-parents dying. I'm sorry, parents in the room. I hope you die in a, in a fiery car wreck. And I yes, hope it's... I knew there was a reason I didn't have kids. <laughs> and I hope it's beautiful and lyrical. No, I, I mean, there were so many things about this movie that I respected in an abstract sort of way. I really respected the way they handled the car crash, which I think is incredibly artful and kind of daring uh, in its, both in its lyricism and in the way it kind of abstracts the experience for the point of view of a very small child. And then the way it immediately reverses and shows you that small child like uh, distressed and distraught and it doesn't continue to kind of like pad the whole thing and just and turn it into a fluffy fantasy. I think there are all sorts of, of moments in this movie that are really, really interesting and that I really liked. But then overall, it just there were just a lot of things that it was doing that are, to my mind, were very calculated to touch the human heart. And I'm not sure I have one of those. So <laughs> no, I, I, I found a lot of it uh, like pretty calculated and pretty conscious in a way that I actually found off-putting. Hmm. And frankly, one of the biggest elements for me was I just did not like the look of the giant CGI dragon. Mm. Oh, it was wow. so unusual. Really? I, I And again, <laughs> I respect the unusualness of it much as I, I really respect the fact that like, thank goodness this film did not try to copy the original Pete's dragon. Like I've, I've been on record as just really being kind of disgusted with the Disney remakes and let's make a louder, much more expensive, inferior version of this thing that's universally loved. And this time around, as Scott says, we we went to a well that isn't necessarily universally loved or even universally remembered and we made a, a new thing out of it that it's it's a own thing. There are a bunch of things about this movie that I that I intellectually respected, but I'm given to understand that somebody at the table cried at this movie and it <laughs> did not three of- <laughs> three other people did it, well did i mean did it hit you on that yeah, emotional sure. level you know i'm not sure what movie you saw in that sense because deets pragan it was called uh, <laughs> apparently it's from the, from the mirror universe you know the scene where elliot is outside and it's watching pete with his new adopted family or what will become his adopted family what and and his recognition that this is this boy's world and he does they aren't going to be to live together like they have and he's going to be alone and without pete i mean and all this is conveyed so beautifully i mean so understated just sort of the bedtime routine and pete you know knowing these comforts he's never had which is a wonderful thing to witness but watching elliot recognize what's going to happen i mean and it's all and the dragon doesn't have any dialogue it's all just spelled out in this very expressive way and, and like i said before it's the the effects are wonderfully realized but not you know show off your and obtrusive in any way I, I to me that that scene alone is worth it 
And to me, that scene is... Don't say anything about that scene. <laughs> I, I, I have to say it. The, the dragon manages to look through the window at the just the exact wrong second. Like, like literally the exact wrong second to see the boy, like, sitting with the family reading that picture book. And, like, everything that's happened before then would have given the dragon a very different idea of, like, how the boy is relating. But, it, I mean, <laughs> this is, like, this is Three's Company comic timing. I walk, walked in at the exact wrong second. I heard the exact wrong thing. Now I have the exact wrong idea. And now no, I'm going to fly Tasha, away forever. Tasha, no. <laughs> it's a good thing Scott has headphones on because steam would be coming no, out of his Tasha, ears well, right I mean, now. I, the boy is treated so warmly and tenderly by Bryce Dallas hard from the get-go i mean yeah, yeah. So, so I, 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 don't... I love how her character relates to pete like it it's, feels so real to how you talk to a child at that age without being condescending to them yeah not necessarily believing him but wanting to understand him and, and, and why he's saying the things he's saying yeah, i mean and, and of course her recognizing part of herself and him and their attraction to to nature and, and wanting to be outside and, and again this is such a, a great escape from where we are now just to be in this world without the things that we associate with the modern world without the without the clutter of cell phones and computers yeah, it took and yeah. a lot of realize it was not set in the it's present. a very pl- it's a it's yeah. It's, it's I, a different feeling as a viewer to be in that universe, and, and it's kind of refreshing and satisfying in a way that it would be impossible for us in the modern day. We had a little, dis- or not disagreement, just discussion after the film of trying to determine when this movie takes place. And it's not clear, and were it not for the lack of cellular phones but then again we don't really see any situations where there would be a cellular phone necessarily I think if we were more if any of us were car people we might have a better but i think it's also yeah but they, it's also like in a town where you feel like people would drive beat up old, old cars, cars yeah you know? i think it's intentionally non-specific yeah ethan body saints is kind of the same thing it sort of could be anywhere from the late 60s to the early 80s mm-hmm. it's kind of set in, in the same era as that and side note that's a really good movie did not get to ain't the body saints yeah did not yeah. get the attention or notice that it oh, deserved yeah, for sure. out, i mean it was one of those films that kind of came out with a whole bunch of other kind of similar like beautifully shot pastoral like indie character dramas mm-hmm. and i feel like it kind of got bold under but yeah that's both beautifully beautifully done and a really good movie so were you guys also all deeply touched by robert well, i knew Redford's... you were gonna bring up robert redford <laughs> no by specifically by because i i did kind of like the whole like he tells the kids the dragon story and it's this whole different version of the dragon story but then he has the real version that he doesn't share with people anymore because it's it's so personal to him like i liked that reveal his corn point voice over framing the movie made me want to tear my hair out I, if it's not robert redford i mean if, if yeah. it's if it's uh wilford brimley or somebody doing that i might i might be <laughs> it, it seemed inclined, yeah but. it seems so intentional that it I, I i noted it like i did note this is a, a very mannered style of delivery and my initial reaction was to kind of buck against it but it's used pretty sparingly it's not constant through the whole film i think it's it's just bookends it doesn't it yeah 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 yeah. but i I think it it functions well in a storytelling yeah i I mean in fact that is my topic uh, stories within stories uh you know one of the things that the black stallion and pete's dragon have in common are the stories within stories each film is framed by a prophetic tale uh, told at the very beginning. Uh, the Black Stallion, Alex's father, tells him the myth of the mighty, fearsome Black Stallion named Bucephalus and how Alexander the Great tamed him and became his master. And in uh, Pete's Dragon, uh, there's a storybook called Elliot Gets Lost uh, that becomes both the source of the dragon's name and a key element in the plot. Elliot Gets Lost, which Lowry wrote, I guess, he wrote this children's book, is about a little boy who gets lost in the woods on a family picnic and has to figure out how to find his way home, uh, which is, of course, Pete's dilemma. Pete has to decide what home is and who his family is, and it's a heartbreaking decision either way, or at least a bittersweet one anyway. To me, the stories within stories in both films are an expression of their values. Ballard and and Lowry are shooting for, you know, again, this word elemental, this sort of elemental appeal that you find in picture books or, or in tales told around a campfire. They're asserting, I think, correctly that this minimalism, you know, the stripping away of everything but the most essential elements will be affecting and also will touch audiences of all ages. You know, the Black Stallion and Pete's Dragon are both all ages entertainments. They're for everybody. And I think the things that are for everybody have a common denominator, and that is 
a simple story, affectingly told. Did you notice that the uh, the picture book, Elliot Gets Lost, the family that has lost their dog is a black family? Oh, yeah, I did notice that. I didn't notice it. I mean, we see so much of that book, and I still didn't notice it until pretty close to the end of the movie. And then I was like, that is a tiny touch that somebody had to make a conscious decision to do, and it's not foregrounded in any way. It's not underlined. It's just, you know, somebody made the point that there's no reason that this little white kid and his white family wouldn't be reading a picture book about a black family because it's a universal experience and i just i was so happy with that incredibly tiny detail there's also another story in pete's dragon besides ellie gets lost there is like the local legend about Mm -hmm. dragons that robert redford's character kind of tells in voiceover and i think that plays into the tone of the film what we were talking about the the idea that we're in a part of the country where there is this kind of folklore baked into the culture there and no one really believes it, but everyone is familiar with it. And so that when this event happens, they kind of have a context for it. Like there's not what one of the things I really appreciate about this movie is that it was very light on the what do you mean? There's a dragon. There's no such thing as dragons. <laughs> and there's a dragon behind him while, while he's saying this. Like, like there's there's nothing really like that. Like there's there's a reason amount of incredulity on the part of the adults in, in this and then when they when they are given proper amount of evidence they accept the reality that there is a dragon in the world you looking for something oh you scared me why aren't you asleep well the same reason you're not i suppose i guess you heard about the boy i did no word travels fast in this town how long has he been out there six years six years Nobody can survive in that forest for six years, at least not alone. Well, he says, he says he wasn't alone. He drew this? He says it's his friend from the forest. And it reminded me of... I know what it reminded you of. I I really like that because I feel like, especially with kids' movies, there can be a lot of that push and pull between like the the kids are right and then the adults just can't see it or yeah, yeah. we really did capture Bigfoot yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which the, it's been a long time but doesn't the original Pete's Dragon have a, a big thing where he's uh, Pete's going to get spanked because he keeps insisting he's out to get a dragon uh, yeah yeah it's been it's been so long <laughs> since I've seen it um, I, I rewatched it a few weeks ago and I don't remember <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Actually, I watched it for the first time I, I, sh- I shouldn't say rewatch it I'd never experienced it before but... you were off watching Star Wars for a yeah. full time <laughs> I mean I remember he gets in big trouble with the, the local school mom for a fibbin and uh, yes. then the dragon shows up. But I don't remember what exactly he's a fibbin about. I assume it's the existence of the dragon. Of the many contrasts uh, between the two films, I, I like the villains in the, the original were very cartoony and villainous. And this film is a film that is short on capital V villains. We have Carl Urban's character who's more misguided and or, or overzealous than anything else, you know, not necessarily a bad-hearted person. And I, I appreciate that about the film as Also well. one of the first people to believe the story yeah. of, of the dragon. So well, we also have Bryce Dallas Howard who thinks it's cute to steal the keys from her boyfriend's uh, vehicle and like throw them somewhere. That was the her boy- no, that was her boyfriend's brother, Carl Urban. Oh, that was yeah, Carl yeah, Urban. Yeah, well, yeah, either way, I, that was that was just a completely dick move. Try- well, and she's well, like, she, 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 she speaks keep, for the she speaks for the trees yeah, and she, they're cutting down the trees. Yeah, you know, and, if and, the and, Lorax <laughs> wants to stop things, like <laughs> steal his keys or oh, I don't know, find some legal means i don't know her like smugness about that was just kind of yeah. like Didn't i liked me. it I, I i appreciate also how the, the ecological elements were not you know you weren't hit over the head with them but you know you couldn't really miss them either like when they, you know the, the unconscious elliot is being carried on the back of a logging truck it's like oh yeah i see i see mm-hmm. the connections they're, they're trying to make here that, it's uh, nuanced uh, you know this is a logging town this is the way they are making their their living and so the criticism of carl urban's character is that he's doing a little too much he's uh encroaching on territory that's you know a little too quickly not being as mindful as an environment as he should be which is different than say fly away home if we're going to bring another carol ballard film into this when you're talking about the total destruction of a like a nature preserve it's almost you know that's a whole different level of villainy there I mean, to me, the whole nature thing was just kind of like the dog that didn't bark. I mean, I guess I'm glad that they didn't make a huge point of, you know, now we have a dragon. We're not going to have to cut down trees anymore. Oh, the dragon's flown away. Now we're going to destroy the forest and Fern Gully will be destroyed unless the fairies. St- I mean, they could have gone done a lot of worse stuff with it. But instead, it just seemed like this really 
incomplete plot point to me. I don't know that it was ever really broached as a plot point. I think it just kind of existed in the background. Like if going back to this topic, if that story book that Ellie gets lost had been about like saving the trees or whatever, then yes, I would have felt like there was like something that they yeah. hadn't completed. But it it all just kind of felt like part of this world, not part of the plot. It's how they come into contact with civilization. Otherwise, they're just going to hang out in the forest forever. You and your civilization. Hanging out in the forest is like way better. Hanging out in the forest with a giant green glowing dog cat CGI thing. Um, of the two kind of introductory stories, like I think that the, the one in Pete's Dragon serves a really interesting function because it sets up that contrast with the real version of the story later. But I still love the one in the Black Stallion so much more because it's so obviously a story that Hoyt Axton is just spinning out to delight his son and his son is aware of it and that little interaction where he's like uh, you know it was a boy about your size and about your age who tamed the horse that no one could tame oh, well, I mean, yeah that, that I'm not I'm maybe won't dispute that but uh I think it's effective and pointed in both uh, in terms of the way they're integrated. Speaking of uh, child performances, I, I think we all agree that Kelly Reno and, and the Black Stallion and Oaks Fegley and Una Lawrence in this are, are quite good. I think it's something you want to talk about, right, Tosh? Yeah, I just kind of wanted to bring up the way both of these films use their child performances, I think, in a, a really interesting way. Both of them have long sequences without words. And I think where kid actors get into the most trouble is when they're forced to emote complicated emotions, especially complicated emotions that adults will recognize and that can be very difficult because they're trying to pretend something that they possibly haven't actually experienced for themselves. Both of these movies keep the emotions so real and so accessible and so age appropriate and I find it just really interesting the way both directors kind of draw out from these kids you're experiencing loss, you're experiencing excitement, you're experiencing confusion, just these very like basic level things and so much of them are allowed to be conferred non-verbally, like allowed to be confirmed through action um, or like through the scenario they're in. Now, I mean, that said, I still don't quite understand why Alec in uh, the, the Black Stallion just like literally sleeps in the middle of a desert or like draped across a rock <laughs> in the middle of the ocean. There's some uh, some odd choices there that drive the plot. But the kids in both of these movies I found really believable. And I think it's because so much effort is being made to break these rules down to things that these kids might actually experience and then drive them to experience them in real time in a enough of a way that, you know, they come across as pretty authentic. I think it's interesting that in both cases, the child actors are kind of acting at a higher level of difficulty because in The Black Stallion, Kelly Reno is obviously acting opposite a horse. And he was, as I mentioned before, he grew up on a ranch. Like he was comfortable with horses, but he's still acting opposite an animal, you know, and that is a higher degree of difficulty for an actor. And then in Pete's Dragon, Oaks Fagley is acting opposite a CGI creature, you know, which is a big ask for a child actor, as I would argue we saw in the, the recent live action Jungle Book, which a lot of people praised this central child performance there for his ability to act against nothing. But I did not particularly care for it. And I thought Oaks Fegley did a much better job acting against, you know, a tennis ball on a stick in that regard. Why well, you got a slug on Mowgli? Yeah. <laughs> it, was, I mean, it was fine. I thought the physicality of that kid's performance was great. But anytime he had to talk, I was kind of not there for it. Mm, yeah. In, in Pete's Dragon, it's nice because um, when Oaks Fegley is not acting against a dragon, he is acting against another very talented child actor, Una Lawrence, as the daughter of Bryce Dallas Howard's fiance. Yeah. So soon, soon to be stepdaughter, I, right. I, I guess, uh, is the relationship. But yeah, I, I, I got the feeling that there, there's sort of a little bit of subtext that their relationship plateaued, mm -hmm. but at the end, they're clearly married because there's a conscious decision to show a, a wedding photo in the foreground of one shot. Oh, so interesting. I think it's a little plot that plays out deep in the deep background yeah. of, of, of this movie. Yeah, but I, I really like the interactions between Una Lawrence and Oaks Fegley because they're roughly the same age, but because Pete has been living in the forest for the past several years, he's kind of intellectually and kind of emotionally stunted at the age where he lost his parents, which is probably around what? Five. five? Yeah. Yeah. Five. yeah. So she kind of takes this nurturing teacher-like role, but from the standpoint of someone who is also a child. And I, I just think that is a, a cool interaction. I think it's significant, too, that Pete is coming into a family that has yet to be 
completed and at least completed by marriage. You know, I think you can kind of speculate that when when he becomes a part of that family, that that they are a unit. So maybe that is the significance of of having Wes Bentley be a fiance <laughs> rather than a husband. Wes or, Bentley being there at all. <laughs> and Wes Bentley. I'm, I'm happy for Wes Bentley. You know, but things didn't really go all that well for him after uh, he's good in this. American Beauty. Yeah, he's got he's got a convincing uh, Pacific Northwest beard. Uh, so. <laughs> Beards of the Pacific Northwest. That's my new. That's my new magazine, guys. But yeah, I think there's something about the, the family not being uh, quite complete yet without Pete in it. I think it's also just really smart the way Larry uses uh, uh, Natalie to draw Pete out. Mm-hmm. You know, he's kind of fascinated with Bryce Dallas Howard from a distance, just in a like another human being and possibly a female human being, which I haven't seen before. But I mean, he's immediately and utterly fascinated by seeing a little kid his age, and in the same way, like you're glad there wasn't a whole lot of dragons don't exist i was glad there wasn't a whole lot of like let's chase him around in the forest and try to trap him it's like you know you've got the perfect bait you've got a human being his size and he's just immediately like captivated and fascinated and i think the kind of the unfolding of that relationship and him kind of coming into his own as the situation gradually shifts towards something that he knows about uh is just a really satisfying dynamic so spinning off this, there's an old W.C. Fields line about not working with kids or animals. And here are films that require filmmakers to work with both. Or in the case of, of Pete's Dragon, maybe not a real animal, but has its own difficulties as well. <laughs> yeah, and that feeds into my topic, which I originally called animals. But as you noted, Elliot is not an animal. So let's just call this topic beasts. <laughs> both of these films trade on the different kinds of relationships between humans and animals and are kind of emotional reactions to those relationships. In The Black Stallion, the black symbolizes kind of the wild, untamed, natural world. And, you know, the whole art can be read as a meditation on man's dominion over nature, this idea that animals can only be civilized if they're treated with respect and even admiration. Pete's Dragon, on the other hand, takes a much cuddlier tack with Elliot, who, as we said, is sort of a dog-cat hybrid and is very cute and seems very much designed to kind of tap into audiences' feelings about pets and companion animals. There seems to be a little more equity there in terms of the idea that man and beast can be friends. The Black Stallion has this as well, but at the end of the day, the Black is subjugated in a way that Elliot, who is set free to find his family, is not. So we're all animal lovers to varying degrees here. So I guess I'm just curious what emotions were tapped for you by the portrayals of beasts in these two films? Well, very much what you said. I mean, if you're a pet owner, I mean, it's hard not to see Elliot as, you know, the pet of your choice in some ways. It's an idealized version of what a a pet would be, but much bigger, you know? Yeah. I mean, does Elliot ever misbehave? No, of course not. It's perfect. (laughs) I'm pretty amused by the fact that you guys were like hardcore, uh, Elliot is a dog, Elliot is a dog. And then I sent you an interview where Lowry... (laughs) specifically says Elliot was based on his cat and now all of a sudden we're we're just like glossing over that like he's clearly a pet of your choice cat dog it's a dog fallacy of authorial intent it is, it is, that is the, that is the doggiest it. dragon around yeah. it's just it's very it's kind of lumbering and and it, and it does it look at all it seems like it was it, it chases it, its it tail which which I, I saw okay, Tasha saying on, on, on I got it. dogs chase their tails well mm. that's more of a cat trait really I think that's more of a dog trait I think what we're learning here is that cats and dogs are the same. Oh, we just guaranteed we're going to get so many letters about this episode. The one thing I love about the dragon is that, and I think what makes it, it almost helps save it as a CGI creation and make it seem less CGI is that it's it's a, a bad flyer. It's, uh, it's, it's a, <laughs> it always it's, comes it's, in for a messy landing. It comes landing. in for a very messy landing and there's something more animal-like about that yeah, than more dog-like than, too. Yeah, and more, <laughs> like and more dog-like. Right, cats cats land on their feet very uh, gently, as so as dogs we know. Dogs are terrible flyers, as and we dogs all know. Are te- dogs are, but I mean, a dog if you uh, pick up a dog and then drop it on the ground, it's not going <laughs> to don't do that. Don't do that. You would dog. never. No, you would never do that. You learn that very early that that is a very bad thing for dogs. But your but dog cat, might bounce. But a cat, cats you can just throw anywhere you want. <laughs> You just hurl them around the room. They don't care. They land on their feet. In any case... You are um, not invited to cat sit for me, Scott. (laughs) But in any case, I I did appreciate the attempt to make this as animal-like as possible and not a a cold CGI creation. And and, and Keith touched on this as well in that scene where uh, Elliot is looking in on, on the family through the window. The effects in this movie and of the giant and and my beloved, the BFG, (laughs) really showed how far we've got in terms of digital creations being plausible, emotional 
beings. So how do you compare that to your reaction to the black? I mean, for me, at least, one of the reasons I didn't connect as much with Pete's Dragon, I think, is so much effort is put into making making Elliot not just cat-like or dog-like, but human-like. Elliot pretty clearly has like a fairly strong native intelligence, like enough to recognize tools, enough to have emotions, enough to recognize a complicated situation. Like the boy that I love is reading that picture book that he reads with me with a different family in civilization and thus I should leave. I mean, that takes a bunch of processing that that a dog wouldn't have. But I think both uh, the Black and Elliot are most interesting to me when they're just these kind of primal avatars of the wild. I mean, for me, Elliot doesn't get better than that moment when he just appears out of the trees to this like terrified little boy who's just experienced this awful loss. I mean, in that moment, he's kind of this like avatar of the wild, which is very much what what the black is. I was not even tempted to shed a tear at Pete's dragon, but I will say without any shame whatsoever that I cried when when the black like finally ate the damn leaf <laughs> because that back and forth between them in that like lengthy scene is just so much about the two of them coming together in this space where both of them are are kind of as wild as each other. You've seen up until that point, Alec as <laughs> a little kid in the 40s walking around in a button-down shirt and suspenders and a sports jacket. And then all of a sudden he's like in rags in the wild and he's as much of a wild thing as the black is. And for me, Black Stallion doesn't get much better than just like watching the black gallop around in in the wilds. And for me, that was just much more compelling. And Elliot as that same sort of like wild thing was much more compelling than he's kind of your fantasy wish fulfillment, magical best friend who loves only you. I would say the level of difficulty for the Black Stallion is much, much higher because when you have a CGI creation, you can make it expressive. And I think, you know, when you have a, a live action animal, that's that's harder. And I think when you have a horse, it's even harder. Yeah. I don't think of horses as particularly expressive animals. Yeah. I can look at a dog and I have a pretty good sense of what that dog's thinking. Horses are, are, are pretty cryptic. But that's, I mean, Ballard takes advantage of that, like, so, so pointedly. And I think it's, it's kind of magnificent. Like, if he was, if it was like a wolf or something, like in Never Cry Wolf, those animals are so expressive. You do kind of feel like you know what you're thinking. One of the things that makes the black so intimidating and, and impressive is its physicality and size. But one of the other thing is you don't know what it's thinking until it takes action. Mm-hmm. And the fact that it's action at the beginning is so erratic. You know, it approaches Alec and then suddenly goes wild or it runs towards him and then it retreats. You don't know what it's going to do. And I, I just find that so much more interesting than, uh, you know, big, big green dog following you around. Well, I would say, you know, in terms of the relationship between boy and animal that the Black Stallion just has a huge structural advantage because, you know, the first half is devoted to building this relationship between the boy and the, and the horse about them learning to, to trust each other and bonding. And I mean, that's really what that whole section of the film is about. And, and you, you literally skip all that with Pete's Dragon. You, skip, you, you, you skip, skip all of it. You, you, skip, you skip six years. Oh, yeah. It's six years later. You get the scene in the forest and then it's six years later and then, you, and then you're dropped into a different situation. And so it becomes less about Pete's relationship with the dragon than it is about finding Pete a home. So it's establishing and, the starting point of the of the story. Yeah, it's about it's, it's about his journey. It's not about the journey of them together necessarily, uh, because the family becomes just as important as in just a big a pull on him as as the dragon. And that's not necessarily the case with the black stallion, which is wholly about the relationship between the boy and the animal. I do think it's interesting that Pete's dragon made the point of, you know, this boy belongs in civilization, this dragon doesn't, and it just kind of becomes, how how are they going to emotionally deal with their parting? Whereas the black stallion is, he's going back to civilization, so the horse has to come with, and the horse <laughs> has to conform to, to the, the place that he's living. I think the Pete's dragon thing makes more emotional sense and is more satisfying in a lot of ways because both of their needs are being considered equally. 
Mm-hmm. And also there's the parallel story where it's not stressed that much, but I mean, Elliot is separated from his family as well. I mean, they're, they're in the same situation. And I was wondering afterward if he maybe kept himself away from them to he can care for the boy too, that that was, that he can care for Pete. I thought that was, that was never... Oh my God, he's the Terry Garth. He's See, I, I, that's I, really I, cool, Keith. I had not thought of that. Mm-hmm. I like it a lot. Before we move on, we should probably talk about the looks of these mm-hmm. movies. They're both striking. And, and I, I also throw out there that you could put either of these films as the best the cinematography of their various eras had to offer. And this is Caleb Deschanel's first real year working as a full-fledged cinematographer for features. And he made this film, More American Graffiti, which I haven't seen, so I can't really speak to that one. But uh, Being There, another really beautiful-looking movie. And, and, and this one, it's, it's very it's sort of like that warm late 70s you know striking contrast between darkness and light but also the uh, all the magic hour scenes and just just bring out things that the film techniques and the film stock of the era can do and 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 uh kind of the the height of a certain type of cinematography that 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 era of filmmaking pete's dragon is doing things we couldn't really have done until now both with digital effects but also the color palette of this it's, the cinematographer here is bojan bezley who's been around for a long time and done able ferrara's cinematographer yeah it's, he started out doing able ferrara stuff he most recently did the lone ranger which is a, is a very good looking movie whatever you think of, of the quality of it he did mr and mrs smith he did but also uh, like hairspray and the ring mm-hmm. i mean some really very very different visual visual movies right i, I couldn't <laughs> even really tell cool you ones. what like what his 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 signatures are but i mean he definitely delivers in a big way here i know i'm in a movie that knows what they're doing when, when the beams of light seem to be arranged just so and you get that in both of these even though they're they take use different techniques to get there didn't you saw a different screening than the rest of us didn't you right i saw a 3d screen oh so yours was 3d yeah. i had some problems with the the 3d in our screening just with sequences that seemed way too dark it seemed very yeah. dark there were a couple of sequences in particular where like the characters start out uh in the car they're going back to the forest and they start out in the car and it's daylight and then they're in the forest and it looks like it's like 9 p.m mm, interesting yeah i didn't really feel that maybe we had better projection looking over bojan bazelli's filmography which is varied i would say but i have mm-hmm. i have seen quite quite a bit on here and kind of the thing that's standing out to me in the films I have seen here, particularly Hairspray and Burlesque of all of all movies, is a really assured use of color. I think you see that in Pete's Dragon too, especially, I mean, the color green is all over this movie. And what's interesting about that to me is the character design of Elliot is taken from the original film where it is a bright green dragon. Like this is a bright green dragon, but he does not have that day glow artificial look the way that Elliot did in the original one when he was placed against the natural world. But in this Pete's Dragon, like seeing Elliot in the forest against the trees was even in the dark projection we had. It was really amazing how well he stood out and blended in simultaneously. Just the range of color of the same color on screen was really beautiful, I thought. I think you're right about Bazzelli's style being you know sort of saturated color because i remember this wesley snipes movie called sugar hill um that did nothing for me but the film looked so unbelievable that i uh, that had to seek his name out specifically to my god this the cinematographer is <laughs> can work wonders and uh and he did so again with a lot of abel farrar films but including body snatchers and his photography and, and that you know which is widescreen is really gorgeous and, and a much much different uh, again sort of slicker palette than Kaufman body snatchers are certainly the original which is in black and white getting back to Ferrara he did uh, King New York which is also just a very nice, strikingly yeah. like you know black and red yeah. rain slicked kind of movie and, and Ferrara likes his movies to be very composed and, and Pete's Dragon has that going for it too and I just think it's, it's the right type of throwback overall and it includes the cinematography it's nice to be transported not just not just in terms of the t- time and place in the film itself but also just to a, a, another type of filmmaking and a tone a, a look a, a pace that that we're just not necessarily accustomed to seeing and it's different for other kids films too like I, I well I haven't seen Nine Lives yet uh, but I've certainly seen the trailer enough times, and and that looks like it was. And this is this is directed by Barry Sonnenfeld, who was the Coen Brothers cinematographer, who was a great cinematographer. But the thing looks like it was lit from like overhead fluorescent lights. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like there's this kind of sense that like with kids' films, you just kind of turn up the lights, throw in some colors, and you got yourself a kids' film. And mm-hmm. this is this is not that. Okay, so you said that the dragon wasn't green and glowy, but sometimes the dragon is green and glowy. 
Okay, can y'all y'all fans of the film explain to me what was up with the thing where like the first time Pete touches him, he like lights up green, and then like later he does it again on the truck, and both times they're like, "Ooh, that's oh, I a thing saw, he does." I but saw it's never explained. Oh, I saw that. You should appreciate that. I saw that as the equivalent of a cat's purr, just sort of a huh. uh, involuntary physical response to pleasure. That I, I'll, I'll buy it. Yeah. Okay. Cat dog. Would Cut you have preferred if he had a uh, tuft of pink hair like the original Beats? <laughs> I guess he did. He did kind of talk like the original Elliot, yeah, which, is, which I will allow Scott to demonstrate now. But he also had that. The... Look in your eyes and I whisper sweetly. <laughs> That's about as karaoke as I'm going to get. But the new one also has like that big Jay Leno lantern jaw thing going on. And I just I found it so weird and distracting. Acting. I again I just the I dragon? think dragon? Yes, the dragon. Well there are here Cat Dog Jay Leno. Here here's my defense of it. Because it, it is very obviously calling back to the design of the original Elliot, which did have that lantern jaw. Mm-hmm. And there are so many dragons in pop culture right now. Mm-hmm. We're we're in a, a bit of a dragon essence. <laughs> no, no, wait, 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 a bit of a draconessence. Nicely done. <laughs> Latined. And but they all kind of look the same yeah. you know your your game of thrones dragons even like your how to train your dragons dragons oh, who, I, who are, I, are very varied pointy, I actually really, pointy really faces very lizardy like yeah yeah it's it's, mm-hmm. it's mainly the the lizard like quality and, and i i think how to train your dragon how to train your dragon to have awesome dragon design so i, I don't even want to to think that i'm suggesting that save but, your feedback people yes they all are very lizard like they have like those lizard eyes so i i liked the attempt to do a cuddlier more mammalian yeah, dragon we're, design we're going back to never ending story exactly and, and yeah big and furry luck dragon yeah does that movie have a song which it's one never ending story hell yeah it does it, does <laughs> yeah, it? I, I, that's a, that's at a register i'm not even <laughs> trying to approach <laughs> oh, god must move on or i will start singing uh, but while we're talking about music that was the last thing i want to bring up none of us really uh topicified the the music in these two movies and i think it's really worth talking about oh, especially yeah. in Especially in Black Stallion. It's for Coppola's dad, Carmine Coppola. And it's a, really, it's a varied score. You know, I love the, the scene we keep coming back to, the scene on the beach. It's all like percussion and just, just sort of like very minimal. It's not without like big sweeping strings, but it's not, that's not the main uh, tone of choice they're going for. Yeah, when 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 he first starts encountering the horse on the island, you just get like the horn theme of of horse triumph. Mm-hmm. But what strikes me even more is what what we start with at the beginning of the film where he's wandering around the boat and you have I think a xylophone and then maybe like a a small amount of percussion and it's just this like very strange minimalist like haunting It's like a lot of marimba or something And it's it's very very art house like you want to talk about art house in children's films the marimba xylophone score Mm -hmm. is like not what you expect to hear in a kid's film Well and it also evoked you know the black is an Arabian stallion from a certain part of the world and I think that a lot of the instrumentation and the instruments used do evoke that part of the world and the the sounds that we associate with it, which tying back to Pete's Dragon is not a musical like the original, but it does have quite a lot of music in it. Um, most of the kind of uh, folky, crunchy variety, I, w- mm-hmm. I would say, um, in in keeping with the setting of the film. The David Lowry had a hand in writing, which is super confusing yeah. because the other David Lowry <laughs> is the is the front man of uh, Camper Van Beethoven. And Cracker. So uh, I don't know if the filmmaker, David Lowry, should be dabbling into songwriting because it's going to <laughs> it's confuse, it, confuse it even more. Yeah. Uh, credit words, too. Also, the score comes from Daniel Hart, who is not an old pro uh, with big uh, movie film scores. He's a Texas guy who came up with David Lowry, who scored his other two films. And, hmm. and I think it's a lovely score. I, I don't even remember the score. I was just so struck by, by the actual songs and particularly the semi-diegetic ballad of the dragons mm-hmm. of the town that we are in and how they kind of integrated that into the story. I thought that was a, both a really interesting choice and that it really did the job it was trying to do, which was convey information that's going to be useful later in the movie, but also convey like how it's been conveyed to all of the characters and it's just kind of a like a mournful yet memorable song so you love the movie is what you're saying (laughs) we've convinced we've persuaded you 
I will once again reiterate, I did not hate this movie. I didn't even dislike this movie. I just wasn't moved by it on the level you guys were. I think there's a lot about this movie that's admirable. It mostly just struck me in a much more intellectual than emotional way. And before we wind things down, I'm going to reiterate, I really love this movie. Scott, how about you? (laughs) Yeah, me too. (laughs) Also love. The Black Stallion can be rented digitally via the usual streaming services. It's also available on Blu-ray and DVD from Criterion. And that's really the version you'll want to pick up for a few reasons. It's got the short films on it. It's got some nice features. It really is an immersive look at this film. And also, you're going to want to watch it more than once. Pete's Dragon is still in theaters and should be seen there if possible. It's a big, beautiful movie. And we'll be right back with our usual recommendation segment, Your Next Picture Show. Finally, it's time to catch each other up on films or film-related items we've seen in the interim since our last podcast. We call it your next picture show in the hopes that it'll put some interesting choices on your radar. Scott, want to kick us off? I'd like to recommend a film called Indignation. Howard Hawks famously said that all you needed for a good movie is three great scenes and no bad ones. Indignation makes me want to tweak that just a little to say in that it has no bad scenes and one absolutely spectacular scene, which you will know you'll know it when you see it. I've been waiting uh, without hope for someone to adapt Philip Roth well on screen, and uh, Indignation sort of finally breaks that losing streak. Um, it's uh, directed by James Seamus. This is a de- directorial debut. Uh, you- you'll know him as Ang Lee's longtime screenwriter. You know, it's not a film that's really going to knock you out with style, but the film channels Roth's voice really strongly. It's intense and it's provocative and it's a type of movie that you really want to argue uh, uh, about over coffee immediately afterwards. It stars uh, Logan Lerman as a precocious Jewish student who has trouble fitting in in a small college in 1951 Ohio because basically he's a Philip Roth type. He's someone who's inclined to question assumptions and start fights and isn't really always on the on the right side of the argument and uh, it's a combustible situation that 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 Seamus and the cast play to the hilt Uh, and again I won't give away the centerpiece of the movie but you'll know when you see it because it's the best scene I've seen in uh, any movie this year. Indignation is the name of the movie and it's it's an art house it's doing pretty well it's doing robust business so if you live in a medium to large size city maybe you'll want to look for it. Tasha what about you? What about me? All right. Well, two things, uh, one of which is shameless self-pimpery. You can hear a week of me talking about Alien on the Alien Minute podcast, uh, starting with episode 51. Is that five minutes of the movie or seven minutes? No, that's five entire minutes of the movie uh, with five different episodes. Um, But I had a lot of fun uh, being on the Alien Minute podcast as soon as they announced that they were going to, uh, you know, follow the Star Wars Minute model and discuss Alien one minute at a time. I was I was so excited. I was so on board. I love that film. And sitting down and actually looking at a discreet minute of it at a time was actually really rewarding. So I recommend that podcast in general, but of course I especially recommend me on that podcast. Which minutes are you doing? Uh, 51 through 56, I guess suppose. I'm on it soon too. Which episodes? After you. <laughs> it, it, it would be whatever minute you got. I, I forget which episode. But do you remember what was going on? Yeah, it starts with the moment when uh, Harry Dean Stanton walks in uh, and starts uh, uh, cooling off that nice cool water and nothing goes wrong. <laughs> Oh, that sounds like you got a rich one. All right. I'm very excited to hear that when it comes up. Um, Second, David McKenzie's latest movie, Hell or High Water. Uh, I think, did we all see that movie? I saw it. I saw it. I I think some of us wrote about it as well. Uh, I wrote about it. (laughs) I didn't write about it. Scott's staring off in his face. He's a talented guy. That he McKenzie. is a talented guy. And he's he's made a bunch of movies. Uh, Startup uh, was a huge Tribeca favorite of mine one year. Um, Young Adam, I think, is a really good, really interesting movie. Um, Perfect Sense is a very flawed movie, but just so strange and artistic and interesting. And Hell or High Water is a neo-Western that has Ben Foster and uh, new Star Trek's new Captain Kirk, Chris Pine, as a pair of bank-robbing brothers who are trying Trying to make money for reasons not revealed till later in the film, while Jeff Bridges is a Texas Ranger on the verge of retirement that chases them down with his partner, who he treats like crap mm-hmm. in some very entertaining but also some very like character telling ways. This movie, like I'm really not all that into movies about like macho displays of uh, sullen silent manliness but the character interactions in this movie are just so great it's just it's 
so well written. It's so well acted. It's so well shot. There's so much going on that you can feel beneath the surface that isn't spelled out about what it means to live in West Texas during this uh, this economic period where everybody's poor and everybody's scrambling. And so many people are in danger of losing their land, their livelihoods, everything they hold dear. I, I just I really enjoyed the dynamics of this movie tremendously. And I mean, it is it is a neo-Western. It's got some like fairly predictable beats to it. And then it's got some really unpredictable beats. Um, I, I recommend it highly. I enjoyed it a lot. Hell or high water. This was my my pick. I have a backup. This was my pick too, though. It was it was, uh, it was also my pick, but I I am Tasha. I was like, "You're going to do Hell or High Water, aren't you?" And she said, "Yeah." So I came up with something else. Good. Yeah, me too. But, I, but yeah, I'll just while we're still talking about it, yeah, this is a really really good movie. And things I loved about how it kept you guessing as to what the main characters even wanted for the longest time, and when you find out, it's really satisfying. Um, my only problem with this movie is we should get like 20 smart genre films like this a year instead of like one or two. But um, hey, it's great though. Uh, yeah, second everything you guys have said. But I think bet- between this and Startup, McKenzie is establishing himself as a director who loves nearly indecipherable accents <laughs> because the West Texas accents in this... That occasionally gave me a, a, a bit of a problem. Everyone sounds like they have a giant thing of chewing tobacco in their mouth at all times. But yeah. Because sometimes they do. Yeah, ex- exactly. <laughs> but it, it just contributed to one of my favorite parts of the movie, which is a sense of place, this West Texas setting and how it, it used it to an to its advantage and from the kind of the economic status of, of the area to the fact that everyone has guns there. And that's just kind of a, a reality of life there. Mm-hmm. And, and that it's funny how that kind of places this modern Western back in the classic Western era in that very specific aspect. So Keith, what do you have? Uh, my backup is, is actually not a good movie at all, but it's a, <laughs> but it's a fun movie that I kind of ended up watching out, out of following a, a train of Wikipedia thought. I'm like, you know what? I'm actually going to watch that. It's a 1968 film called The Green Slime. Um, <laughs> Oh my gosh! I'm pretty sure I've seen that film. You might, you might have. It's from our old friend uh, uh, Kenji Fukasaku, who directed Battle Royale. And like I said, not a good film, but a film that has a lot of interesting elements to it. It, it is, uh, if I understand correctly, the first sort of real Western Japanese co-production, and it shows because it has this. Uh, our old friend Richard Yakel, uh, Yakel, Yakel, <laughs> how, how we pronounce it? Daily uh, Yakel. It's one. It's one of the stars, uh, Robert Horton, and and then and then somebody, um, somebody with a very thick Swedish accent who probably had no business being in the film <laughs> is the female lead. But it, it looks like they've actually wandered onto the set of like a 60s Japanese science fiction movie with like r- monsters and, and rubber suits. The other thing is, is it's like, it's not a good movie, but it's obviously a movie a lot of people saw because the first half hour is Armageddon. It essentially is the same plot as Armageddon. And then just thinking about the way the creatures once they don't have acidic blood, but there's some other things where you can't really destroy them without doing further harm to the thing. It's very much Alien is borrowing from this movie as well. So not good. It's fun. It's really fun. So uh, if you got room in your heart for the green slime, see the green slime. I'm pretty sure I encountered this uh, on TV in a heavily edited version in my youth. Where where can one see the green slime these days? It's available on DVD through like Warner's uh, Burn on Demand thing, Warner Archive. But also I think it's, it's on iTunes. It's on a couple other sources as well. Cool. Genevieve, that just leaves you. What would you like to recommend? Yeah, I had a really good movie going week between Pete's Dragon, Hell or High Water and the film I'm about to recommend, which is called Don't Think Twice. It is uh, written and directed by comedian Mike Birbiglia, who's really known for a kind of more storytelling driven strain of comedy, which is interesting because Don't Think Twice is all about improv comedians. It takes as its organizing principle the three main tenets of improv comedy, which boil down to say yes, don't think, and most significantly to the story, it's all about the team. Um, the film follows this relatively successful, long-running improv group and sort of kind of tracks its dissolution as the members, you know, they're all getting older and they're kind of achieving different levels of success. The instigating incident is one of the group's members, played by Keegan-Michael Key, is hired by a Saturday Night Live analog, but it really just kind of serves to highlight the ways in which this group relationship is struggling to transition to adulthood, more or less. A lot of kind of great nerd comedy names in the cast. You have Birbiglia, uh, Kate Micucci, Keegan-Michael Key, Chris Gethard. But uh, Gillian Jacobs of Community is really the highlight of this film. She is truly wonderful. And I, I think she is the star among some really bright comedic names here. And she alone is probably reason to go see it. But 
really, if you have any interest in comedy, improv, or otherwise, it's probably a story you want to seek out. Did you go see the screening where she was in town? I did. I okay. did. Um, I I did not stay for the Q and A because you I, hate Q and A. I do hate Q and As, but I I did uh, brush by her in the in the lobby. Uh, How many it, times have you done that? I know. I know. I always get caught sneaking out of Q and As. It's it's like my my desire to escape awkwardness leads to a more awkward situation. <laughs> I'm just I'm thinking about the time that you you basically bowled over Dan Stevens running out of the guest. I think if Love people you, I don't want to hear you talk. <laughs> I think so if people stuff. realized that they could run into celebrities by fleeing the Q&As, like there would be a line out the door to compete with you to bump into these celebrities. Well, there there were a lot of people in the lobby taking pictures of Gillian Jacobs who is pocket-sized. I know mm. I, I should stop being surprised when actors are small, but she is very small. Uh, to be fair, I think you're probably not fleeing what these people had to say. Exactly. What it's, like I can imagine as an Improv person myself. Oh, yeah, no. and, and I did. I did see it in an audience that was very appreciative of the improv-specific humor. And I'm well, guessing we do live in Chicago. We do live in Chicago. As someone yes. who has taken a Second City class, yes. I'm going to hold forth for ten minutes now without asking a yeah. question. Also, I had somewhere to be, but I really <laughs> do appreciate her performance in the film, and that's more important than watching her awkwardly answer audience questions. I think I gotta admit, I was I felt a little hold off on this movie just because improv tends to make me a little squirmy. Oh, me too. I I, I respect improv comedy 100%. I respect it as a tool. I think it is essential to comedy, but I cannot stand watching it for the most part because it's like an empathetic response. Like I project my own discomfort onto the performers, even if they don't feel that. But really, I I think the improv is more of a framing device here. You know, you don't need to be crazy about improv comedy to appreciate the emotions that are happening here. Yeah, I was just on our parent podcast, Film Spotting, a second shameless plug. Mm -hmm. And Adam actually big upped uh, Don't Think Twice. Like that was one of his recommendations. And I kind of asked him the same question about like how it interacts with the the improv thing. And he said the same thing. And I, I, you know, if if two Film Spotting podcast family (laughs) members agree, clearly. I need to see this film. You do. Everyone should see it. And it's uh, in theaters now. So, All right. Thanks, everyone. That's definitely going to be some more things to, to seek out. And that's it for this week's edition of The Next Picture Show. Our next episodes come out September 6th and September 8th. Genevieve, what do we have lined up? The jaw-droppingly gorgeous new stop-motion CGI offering from animation studio Leica is large-scale fantasy from a visionary creative force dedicated to hands-on work methods, pushing the envelope in an eccentric field, and doing things with puppets you've never even dreamed of. In those ways and others, like its epic quest story and self-reliance narrative, it's reminiscent of Jim Henson and Frank Oz's 1982 puppet-driven live-action fantasy adventure, The Dark Crystal. Both films are brimming over with idiosyncratic creative vision, so it should be very interesting looking at them side by side. In the meantime, we'd love to hear your feedback on this week's discussion of The Black Stallion and Pete's Dragon, and anything else film-related. We want to include your thoughts on future episodes of the show. You can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. Finally, before closing out this week's episode, where can we find everyone these days? Tasha? Uh, You can find me writing about film at theverge.com and you can find me on Twitter at Tasha Robinson. No space. Genevieve, you don't have any. Do you have a permanent home now? <laughs> I do. Um, starting what? today, well, starting today that we're recording this, you can find me at Vox.com. I will be uh, helping with the culture section there right now behind the scenes, but I'm sure I will push my way in front of the scenes and write something uh, in the near future. And in the meantime, I'm also on Twitter at Genevieve Kosky. Isn't that the flagship publication of, of Vox Media? <laughs> of Vox Media, which uh, also owns The Verge. So Tasha and I are now... We're, we're colleagues once we're again. We're practically twinsies. Yep. Technically, we're working in the same office, if by the same office you mean each of us working in our own homes. Yep. <laughs> Scott? You can find me on Twitter at, at Scott underscore Tobias, and you can find scattered bits of my work at uh, NPR, Variety, um, Village Voice, uh, New York Times, Uprocks. Uh, Vulture, other places like that. You get more annoyed every outlet you. you, I know. You're like, oh, I hate that I have to list off so Uh, many different places. I'm thinking about all the all the the deadlines. It's like all these all these places they want material for me. You know, if you wanted to make this part of the podcast easier every week, you could make a website that compiled all of your writing somewhere. Tumblr and. And do you update it frequently? It's been a while. But what about what about 
What about Oscilloscope Spusians? You don't do anything there, do you? I'm the editor-in-chief. Yeah, there you go. All right. Oh, yeah. um, and you can find me on Twitter at kphipps3000 and behind the scenes and in front of the scenes at uprocks.com where I head up the uh, coverage of film and television. You can stay updated on the Next Picture Show via Twitter at, at nextpicturepod, via Facebook at facebook.com slash nextpictureshow, or by visiting nextpictureshow.net. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to the show on iTunes. And while you're there, think about rating and reviewing us. Every thumbs up helps us find new listeners and keep the show going. Thanks to Colin, the animal Griffith, for his assistance producing the show. And thanks to Delmark Records for providing recording space at their home base, Riverside Studios. The Next Picture Show is proud to be a part of the Film Spotting Family of Podcasts and the Panoply Network. Please tune in next time. Go north, go north with the wings on your feet. Go north with the wind where the three rivers meet There's a clearing of sorts in a circle of trees Where the wild constellations shine one, two, and three Look all around you and see Deep in the forest their dragons will be